Welcome to Night School, taking a stab at the Middle Ages, a podcast devoted to medieval history and culture, and the occasional bad pun. I'm Becca, bringing you everything related to medieval religion and church history. And I'm Claire, talking about medieval literature and history. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're joined by Dr. Edward Wheatley to discuss medieval disability studies. Dr. Wheatley is Emeritus Professor of English at Loyola University, Chicago. Dr. Wheatley's primary research interests include the history of the book in the medieval and early modern periods and disability in medieval literature and culture. Within the field of medieval disability studies, he examines representations of blindness in history, art, religious discourse, drama, and literature. Topics which he explores in his book, Stumbling Blocks Before the Blind, Medieval Constructions of a Disability. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wheatley. We're excited to have you on the show. Thank you. So I'm just going to get started with a very general question for our listeners. We were kind of wondering when the term disability entered the English language, and was there a vocabulary for non-abled-bodiedness or mental difference in the Middle Ages? Well, it's interesting that you ask this question because disability, of course, was not in the English language uh, until the second half of the 16th century. So uh, in the Middle Ages, there was no umbrella term uh, covering all kinds of physical, mental differences. Um, Of course, there were terms for uh, the different kinds of disability, uh, blind, obviously deaf, in terms of uh, of lame, or uh, often they use the word halt, H-A-L-T, as synonymous with lame. Um, The word melancholy, which tends to be associated with uh, uh, bipolar disorder or depression, um, entered the language about 1375 through French. So as time went on, um, and also uh, as um, medicine became uh, more widely practiced across Europe, uh, the terminology for different kinds of disabilities, and then also the the overall term of disability uh, came into the English language. Um, And obviously, as a professor of English, you predominantly approach this from a literary perspective. So we were wondering how do literary representations of disability open up our understanding of the multiplicities inherent within experiences of disability? Well, I could address this in two ways. There are obviously uh, fictitious representations of disability, like the wife of Bath and uh, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, one of the best known of the pilgrims, who in the general prologue is introduced in the second line describing her as being Somdale deaf. So she's a little bit deaf. Um, And in her prologue, we learn that it was because of an act of domestic violence that she is deafened in one ear. So in other words, she describes to us uh, how and why she became disabled, although she doesn't really go into the experience of being slightly deaf. And in fact, 
she engages quite a lot in dialogue with the other pilgrims. So uh, there is uh, an example of what I, what I would say is a certain ambiguity in a literary representation. Um, other texts, uh, which are what we would now call life writing, in which people with disabilities describe their own conditions, give a slightly different and perhaps more nuanced representation of uh, what disability might be. Marjorie Kemp, who was a medieval mystic, after she became a mystic, she began vocalizing, shall we say, anytime she sees uh, the image of the crucified Christ, or even when she sees little boys who remind her of Jesus when he was uh, a child. And by vocalizing, I mean bellowing. She, she made so much noise that, that she was asked to leave the church, uh, the church building when services were going on. We also have Hockleave, Thomas Hockleave, who was a 15th century poet who obviously suffered from a pretty serious mental illness for three years. Uh, serious to the point that his friends had to go on religious pilgrimage to pray for him, he couldn't go himself. And he, he says, my mind went to play, uh, which is an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, he did recover, and he then writes a poem in which his persona engages in a dialogue with a friend, and he asks whether he should come out as disabled, as uh, come out in terms of telling his community about his mental illness. Um, and that, of course, is, is an issue that people with mental illness still address today. Uh, a third one, a third person is Gilles Lemuisy. He was the abbot of Tournay in the uh, 15th century. He became blind at, uh, in his old age and wrote about his blindness. But then, believe it or not, he was cured when his cataracts were removed, a very dangerous process at the time. And he then starts writing poetry about how horrible blind people are. So, uh, and, and he, he describes them in very de demeaning, derogatory ways. So we do get interesting literary representations of disability. If I were to generalize, I would say that in fiction, the represent representations tend to be more uh, exaggerated, whereas in life writing, we see more nuance uh, in terms of the way uh, the disabilities are represented. That is really interesting. Um, Rebecca and I did an episode on Marjorie Kemp with Professor Diane Watt, and it was a great episode. And she also touched a bit on what you were also saying. So that is really interesting. And another quote that really stuck out to Rebecca and I when we were reading sources on medieval disability studies was a quote from Claire Barker and Stuart Murray's introduction. And they say, but if it is true that disability pervades literature across the ages, it is also true that it is frequently not seen. How and why do you think disability is often lost in other topics when discussing literature? And why should we interrogate how terms for disability are used as derogatory metaphors? And how are they powerful tools of persuasion? That's kind of a long question, so no pressure on how you want to answer it. <laughs> well, I guess, in a sense, I disagree with uh, Professor Barker 
um, but only within the realm of medieval literature. I think it's rare that a disability is uh, negated or subsumed in other topics. I would say, though, that in terms of derogatory metaphors, we terms for disability tend to exemplify catachresis, which is a rhetorical term meaning that they lose their literal meaning by becoming uh, dominant metaphors. Blind, of course, is a, a catechesis in terms of understanding rather than the actual physical ability to see. Uh, you're in a, a difficult situation and you do something stupid and your mother says, are you blind? Which of course is, is metaphorical. Um, I think uh, the catechesis related to disability that is most common these days is lame. Uh, you know, that movie was really lame. Uh, your excuse for being late is really lame. Uh, and people are obviously not thinking about the disability of uh, lameness when they use that term. And so perhaps it's worth noting that people with uh, issues of mobility find the, the use of the term lame as catechesis uh, pretty insulting. It's considered to be derogatory. Yeah, and I think um, another aspect that we were interested in learning more about, which you write on, um, is kind of the different approaches that scholars take to studying medieval disability. Um, and one that you write about in the Cambridge Companion to Literature and Disability um, is this approach via the religious model. So we were wondering, you know, continuing with this conversation of metaphorical or literary tropes about sin and divine chastisement um, or miraculous healing, how this kind of adds to our understanding of medieval perceptions of disability? Right. Um, well, in my book, I uh, and in the, the chapter in the Cambridge Companion, I define the religious model in relation to medieval Catholicism, which of course was the dominant religion in Europe in the Middle Ages. I think it's important to consider that in relation to a number of disabilities. And the religious model basically asks us to consider how biblical texts construct disabilities and then how medieval religious practices interacted with disabilities. Through the religious model, there is the possibility of miraculous cure, um, which of course is a uh, well, it can happen in two ways. If, if the disabled person uh, maybe goes to a saint shrine and prays fervently, uh, there may be a, uh, a miraculous cure. The other way that it can happen is if a saintly figure is uh, interacting with a person with a disability, the, the saintly figure can uh, enact a cure on the person with disability, uh, thereby um, increasing the authority of that saint. There's another uh, aspect of the religious model that is particularly relevant to blindness, and that is that uh, after the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, uh, it was required that Christians confess and receive the Eucharist, receive communion, uh, at least once a year. 
But throughout the Middle Ages, one of the most common ways of quote unquote receiving uh, the Eucharistic bread is called the elevation of the host. And that is the moment at which the priest is consecrating the bread and the uh, wine. And he, uh, he is at the altar. He turns around and faces the congregation and holds up uh, the Eucharistic bread so they can see it. That was considered to be a perfectly legitimate way uh, to partake in the Eucharist. Uh, so you can imagine how a visually impaired person might be excluded from that, uh, might not be able to see the host. And so basically that is a way in which the religious model is uh, unfavorable toward people with, uh, with visual impairments. Perhaps people with, uh, with visual impairments could receive it, uh, could receive the Eucharist physically, more often than your average sighted person. So the religion it is really multivalent in terms of the way it responds to disability. And I've found it a useful foot in the door in, as, as a kind of methodology for studying disability. So this next question is kind of more specific. Um, and I just finished the B text of Pierce Plowman. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this. Um, so how do texts such as Pierce Plowman reinforce distrust of non-able-bodied people? And were these suspicions articulated widely in medieval literature? Um, yes, uh, Pierce Plowman is interesting, uh, not only in terms of its take on what uh, medieval Christians should do to improve the world in which they live, um, but it was also written at an interesting historical moment which is to say after the Black Death of 1348, which killed up from a third to a half of the population of, of Europe. Um, after that, there was a shortage of laborers um, and laborers could move around the country finding uh, work, the highest paid work that they could find. And this, well, it, it kind of changed the, the economic uh, basis for labor in, uh, in the second half of the 14th century. Also, with people moving around, uh, you didn't necessarily stay in your community. You were among strangers and you could feign disability. You could pretend to be disabled in order to beg. This is exactly what William Langman describes in Piers Common. There are people who, uh, lay their legs aleary. In other words, they, they twist their legs in order to appear to be blind. Blindness too, of course, can be feigned uh, pretty easily. So what he does is when he describes these characters feigning disability, uh, he brings in the allegorical figure of hunger who hits the, the people feigning disability and uh, basically it makes them uh, stop feigning disability and get out there in the fields to work. Another interesting text is a, a drama that actually came out of a saint's life, the life of St. Martin. In this story, you have a blind man and a lame man. St. Martin has just died, but his body uh, exudes such powerful uh, religious force that it cures disabilities willy-nilly, uh, whether, whether you want to be cured or not. These two disabled men 
talk about how happy they are to be disabled because they don't have to work. Um, the body of St. Martin happens to pass by uh, his funeral procession and they are miraculously cured. In one version of the play, the blind man uh, praises God and thanks him for restoring his sight. The lame man uh, curses the fact that God has cured him and says he's going to use herbs and rubs and so on in order on his leg in order to pretend to be uh, lame. He's, he's going to feign disability uh, in order not to have to go to work. So yes, you get a lot of anxieties about uh, people feigning disability. When you think that begging was kind of the social uh, safety net of the Middle Ages, it, feigning disabilities becomes a real issue because the people who are genuinely disabled uh, are not getting the alms that uh, should rightly go to them. I think another aspect of your research that Claire and I we're interested in continuing with this theme of, you know, seeing negative portrayals or perceptions of disability associated with suspicion, like you were speaking of um, in regards to Pierce Plowman, but in relation to anti-Semitic rhetoric. Um, so you've written a lot about various literary tropes of disability derogatorily used against Jews in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period. Uh, you specifically write a lot about the Croxon play of the sacrament from the late 15th century. Could you kind of talk a little bit more about that um, in relation to your research? Well, um, the Croxton play of the sacrament is about the desecration of the host, the desecration of the Eucharistic bread. Um, a group of Jews uh, persuade uh, a Christian to steal the consecrated bread from the church. Um, they pay him for it, and they then put it through a, a kind of mock crucifixion. They uh, nail it up, but it sticks to the hand of one of the Jews. They nail the bread to a post, but then the Jew's hand comes off and, and sticks to it. Uh, so this is kind of an, well, it's, it's clearly an anti-Semitic representation uh, because the, the Jews are made to look ridiculous. It's kind of a three stooges type setup, except there are more than three. And a child appears to them. It is evidently Jesus. And he scolds them and says, you have not believed in me. Um, and they are converted. Um, it's interesting that their punishment is actually lighter uh, than that of the Christian who sold them uh, the bread uh, because he is betraying his faith. They, the Jews, are um, taking on the faith of their Christian neighbors. And the Jews themselves in this play talk about how they are considered to be blind uh, they say, we are blinded by a cake. In other words, we are blinded uh, because of the Eucharistic bread. Um, so the, the metaphor of blindness is there, but what we have in the drama is a kind of enactment of the incompleteness of uh, the Jewish belief system. Incomplete because, yes, during the Old Testament era, they were the children of God, they were the chosen people, but uh, it, their belief system is incomplete because they don't believe in 
uh, Jesus as the, the savior. And here, most often, as in the Protestant play of the sacrament, blindness comes up, but the incompleteness of their belief system is uh, literalized, in a sense, by the uh, loss of the, the Jew's arm. Um, it is restored, of course, when uh, they, they say they believe in Christianity, when they convert. So speaking more to blindness specifically, how is blindness used in religious discourse as an anti-Semitic derogatory metaphor to describe Jews? And then also, could you speak to how this trope is traced back to the Pauline letters of the New Testament maybe a little bit? The, the blindness of the Jews is a trope based on the fact that Jews did not see the divinity of, of Jesus. I've always found this kind of ironic because only the people who were alive when Jesus was alive could actually see him, right? Uh, but nevertheless, blindness is the uh, dominant trope for Jewish lack of belief. It goes back to the Pauline letters. This is Romans um, chapter 11. That which Israel sought, he hath not obtained but the election hath obtained it and the rest have been blinded. In other words, the elect have seen and understood the divinity of Jesus. The, the rest have been blinded. As it is written, God has given them the spirit of insensibility, eyes they should not see and ears they should not hear until this present day. And to skip a verse then, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. That, that is Paul, that last bit is Paul quoting from one of the Psalms. So that is a, a pretty significant uh, biblical passage in terms of relating blindness to the unbelieving Jews. Looking more broadly, Claire and I were also interested outside of literary and religious discourse and these um, you know, derogatory uses of disability. We were also interested in learning more about the actual um, treatment or practices of contemporary European society. When we were researching the topic, we did see that in some instances there were hospices created and almsgiving uh, for those who were physically disabled or non-able-bodied, etc. But we also saw some examples of extremely cruel or exploitative practices such as the blind beating of the pig game. And this spectacle, you've written about this in relation to um, a 15th century journal that you discovered, how it describes this historical performance and spectacle um, in relation to a marginal illustration from the romance of Alexander, which you've written about. So we were wondering if you could kind of talk about this a little bit and how this influences um, you know, outside of the literary sphere, how contemporary society treated people who might have had either physical or mental differences. Right. Well, um, you mentioned the hospices. We can talk a little about the Hospice des Quinze Vents, which means uh, the Hospice for the 300, which was founded by Louis IX, now known as Saint Louis, uh, in the 1260s, and it was uh, founded in order to accommodate blind people and their families. Uh, the entire family could move in. Uh, they could also move out if they were no longer in financial difficulty. And it's interesting to note that 
in the Middle Ages, blind residents of the hospice were elected to uh, serve on the board, so to speak. Um, so in other words, their voices were actually heard. This is not uh, the, the kind of 19th century model in which uh, people with disabilities were largely silenced. I bring that up because this quote unquote game was played with blind people in the Rue Saint-Honoré, which is the street in Paris where the hospice was located. So obviously there were uh, blind people around. I found a passage in, uh, the journal has been published. It's a journal of a bourgeois Parisian. Um, it was written around 1425. And I'll just read here a description of this so-called game. Uh, the last Sunday of the month of August, there took place an amusement at the residence called Damignac in the Rue Saint-Honoré, in which four blind people, all armed, each with a stick, were put in a park, and in that location there was a strong pig that they could have if they killed it. There was a very strange battle because they gave themselves so many great blows with those sticks that it went the worse for them because when the stronger one believed that uh, they had hit the pig, they hit each other. And if they had really been armed, they would have killed each other. Note the Sunday evening before the game, the said blind people were led through Paris with their clubs, a large banner in front where, uh, where there was a pig portrayed, and in front of them, a man playing a bass drum. Well, I knew of that description of the game, and then at a certain point, I came across an illumination at the bottom of a, a, a manuscript page. It's in two sections. The first shows four blind men carrying clubs being led by a boy, and the second scene shows them playing the quote-unquote game, hitting each other with the clubs. A, a pig is a among them, none of them is hitting the pig, they are hitting each other. That illumination, because it is in a, a very luxurious manuscript that was meant for royalty, we have um, records of when it was produced. Uh, so it was produced in the 1340s. Now remember the journal that I uh, just read from was written in 1425. So 85 years or so later. So obviously this game, quote unquote, was played more than once if it lasted uh, for the 85 years between the illumination and the uh, journal entry. Adding evidence to that, the fact that it was done repeatedly, is the fact that the illuminations at the bottoms of the pages in this manuscript show all kinds of pastimes, entertainments, and games, people playing chess, people watching um, puppet shows, uh, people playing other kinds of games. So I thought this horrible game must have been as recognizable to people in the Middle Ages as was chess and puppet shows and that kind of thing. Horrifying to think. Well, um, after I wrote the book, a French scholar named Olivier Richard wrote an article about the game, and uh, he 
finds out that this game was staged 12 times in different cities across the Low Countries, France and Germany, between 1386 and 1498. Uh, 12 times between 1386 and 1498. Well, that's a century, obviously. Um, and the fact that there is recorded evidence of 12 performances must mean that many, many more uh, instances of the game took place, but they simply weren't recorded or uh, the written records have been lost or destroyed. So the manuscript illumination from 1344 precedes the written records of when the game was played. But sad to say, I imagine it was played far more frequently than we have records for. Um, so it's, when I put the journal entry together with the manuscript illumination, it was a great day for me as a medievalist, but I was also thinking, yeah, you know, how horrible can people be to each other in order to, to stage games like this? So it was a, a mixed day <laughs> emotionally when I found that out. Just out of curiosity, where did where was the 1425 journal? Like, was it published when you were reading it, or were you at a library? I was. I'm just uh, curious. It, it was published. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I think I would have had no reason to come across it, no way to come across it if it hadn't been published. So, uh, because it's a kind of snapshot of Paris in the 1420s. Uh, it certainly deserved publication. Right, absolutely. Um, so just for a last little question, we always like to end kind of on a, I guess you could call it a fun question. Um, but we were just kind of curious what your favorite book is right now, or if there's something you recently read that you've enjoyed um, in quarantine. <laughs> uh, yes, well, um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of reading in quarantine. That I think my favorite uh, may not be the word I would use, but I think one of the books that has uh, impressed me most profoundly is Beloved by Toni Morrison. Um, that's my favorite book. <laughs> is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I have taught that book, um, my introduction to literature course, uh, is on the uh, topic of the Gothic and obviously Beloved, which is about uh, the kind of spiritual return of a, a child slave who has been murdered, uh, fits the Gothic category. I've taught that book many times and I read it cover to cover every time I reteach it because I think it's just so powerful. And um, I am in awe of the way Morrison describes what it's like for a woman who has been a slave, whose son has bought her freedom for her, um, how she feels when she looks at her own hands. And she says, these are now my hands. They don't belong to anyone else. And the time that I'm going to spend doing uh, domestic activities or whatever is my time. It's not time that belongs to someone else. And it's a profoundly moving um, moment in that novel that really spoke to me about uh, the 
mental aspects of slavery as much as the uh, physical aspects. So uh, that I think is uh, an incredibly uh, powerful book. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you again, Dr. Wheatley, for joining us. Thanks again for inviting me. Listeners, stay tuned for our next episode. (laughs) 